Okay, we could all stand to say the creed, please. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made, as man of our salvation, and came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit, was incarnate in the Virgin Mary, and became one. Our Savior is crucified and crucified, and was and rose again on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven, and he sees at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I confess my heart to for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead, and life of the world to come. Amen. Our Lady, Mother of the Church, Saints John Fisher and Thomas More, Saint John Ogilvy, Saint Alphonsus Liguri. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, welcome back, everyone. Hope you've all had a good afternoon. A special welcome to our guest speaker this afternoon, which is John Deegan. Uh, John is Deputy Chief Executive of Spook UK and Chief Executive of Spook Scotland. Uh, previously, he was a Parliamentary Officer for the Bishops' Conference of Scotland. He studied physics at Paisley Technological College and became an engineer, uh, and later gained a Master's in Human Rights Law from the University of Strathclyde. He's married to Angela, and Claire, his daughter, says he has six amazing daughters and Sean. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. Uh, the title of his talk is Life Giving Love, Displacing the Culture of Death. John. Okay, good afternoon. I know this is the talk you've all been waiting for. Um, I've promised to stay at the lectern. Is, that, is, is the feedback in that? No? Okay, if I talk, you'll fix it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, um, well, the, the topic I was given is life-giving love. So where I'm coming from is um, the pro-life movement. And uh, basically everyone talks about love nowadays, and, you know, we love everybody. Tom, Dick, and Harry's love. You know, but the thing is, we forget uh, about uh, the children in the womb who are not loved, who are seen as disposable, and we live in a society, really, that um, has been characterised as one which has a culture of death. And so I really want to have a look at how we respond to that. So I think, I think it's a loving thing to do, to respond to that and try to, uh, let's say, displace. I think I want to focus on this part of the, the talk, the displacing the culture of death and... I know you've had a lot of talks this week looking at some of the philosophical underpinnings of the problems that we're facing. Uh, for example, uh, the relativism that now makes it difficult to have a conversation with people because we do not have a shared basis uh, on wh in which to reason. So I want to uh, uh, 
have a look at how we can maybe respond, given that that is, is the situation. And th- th- I realise you do lots of things at this, this, this weekend and you learn, learn a lot. It's, it's a great opportunity for young people and for, for old people, anyone actually to take time out in their life just to reflect on the, the principles that are promoted by the church and a, a chance to expose yourself to the, that teaching and, and to chat about it with others and to meet others and realising that you're not the, the last sane person in the world because you probably feel when you're speaking to your peers at school or university that, you know, where are these guys coming from? And hopefully I can maybe touch on why you have that feeling quite quite often. So in Displacing the Culture of Death, I just want to um, pick out a couple of things. I'm going to raise this one. Um, you're all into memes nowadays, aren't you? You're always sharing memes on, I don't know, it's probably, you're probably saying, oh, you're out of date. So the, the kids help to keep me a wee bit up to date with what you're all up to in social media and stuff like that. But memes are, are a big thing. And I'll maybe touch, well, I definitely will touch on memes. But I, I thought this one is, is quite a good one. Because it may be, <clears throat> I, I, I sort of get into debates with young people about what a meme is because they think I don't understand what they are. But I'll explain, I'll explain that when I get to my, my talk, what, what a meme genuinely is. But this, what, this is a, a meme that you will understand is one, I think, and which genuinely is one, because it's one of the key figures of the sort of secularist culture, and, and it's perhaps exemplifying exactly what a lot of people in our society believe, and it's basically the residual thought that some people have in, in our society about the role of religion. So he says, I'm against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. And I think these guys probably genuinely believe that. I think you probably think that um, when folk at university find out that you're religious, they'll probably step back and think, oh, but up until now, you've seemed pretty normal. You've, probably, you've seemed quite intelligent. And wow, you've just really, <laughs> you've really shattered the illusion. Um, so, in that basis, we'll come back to that. We just I thought, thought it was worthwhile putting that, putting that in your mind as a, as a reference point for what I'm about to say. And another reference point is to touch on the scale of the culture of death. So uh, in Scotland, uh, 12,000 lives every year are lost to abortion. In England and Wales, it's roughly 190,000. So cumulatively in the UK, we're seeing about 200,000 lives lost uh, because of abortion. In America, it's one million a year, and the World Health Organization believes in the world every year there are 56 million abortions. That's, that's like the whole population of the UK being lost every single year. And the, the response, when the World Health Organization came out with this figure not that long ago, do you know what the response to it was? This shows you we need more abortions. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite... Uh, bizarre, the way people's minds work. But this is the reality. They think we have to make more abortions more widely available to women. This is the challenge that we're facing in the, the pro-life movement. And I think it's a challenge that what I'm trying to do is mainstream that a bit more, even within the Catholic community. Because we do a lot uh, of acts of charity, and, and typically in our, our parishes, in our churches, in, in our communities. We do fantastic things. Um, but very often we find that the pro-life uh, aspect 
is more of a marginal interest. It's something really that doesn't seem, in my view anyway, maybe you can correct me, in your parishes it, it may be very different. Uh, but on the whole, it's more of a marginal thing. Anyway, I mean, there's lots of ways I could analyse that to show you that that's the case. Primarily, when you're running an organisation, one of the things that you sweat over is, do I have enough money coming in, for example? And when I look at the income, so if we base it on income of how much does the pro-life movement bring in in terms of donations, and then you compare that with just one international aid organisation, you will probably find that one international aid or a bigger one might bring in a hundred times as much money as all of the pro-life groups, certainly in Scotland. That, that's the scale of it. And the scale of it is such that um, what sometimes I like to do is to put it into perspective. When we're doing all this stuff, I mean, I, and we do, we do stuff that we need to do. My, my kids are involved in it. I support it as well. All the stuff that Skiaf or Mary's Meals do, the worrying about refugees, worrying about the homeless, worrying about people who are dying from malaria and AIDS. We need to do all of that stuff. It's great that we do. It's great that we prioritise it. But if you have a look at this, a global comparison of the death rate, what is the biggest killer in the world just now? And you can see that there's not even a competition. You know, deaths from hunger. So hunger-related deaths are around about 7 million. Deaths from malaria, another uh, terrible killer, are around a million. Deaths from cancer. And all of you will probably think, yes, well, I know a family or it's, it's touched my family. I've got a relative who's been afflicted by cancer. It's a terrible killer, but there are 7 million. And look at that, the number of deaths. So the impact of abortion as an element of the culture of death is absolutely huge. So anyway, that, those are just the, the reference points. Now I'm going to go into what my talk's about. And I want to really look at some tools that I think can enable us to reach out um, to our peers, to reach out to our society. Um, because what we are doing now, I'm, I'm not really, um, I've decided not to do a PowerPoint, to be honest. I, I've just got a couple of slides for reference purposes. So now I'm just going to talk, and I thought that might help you focus on what I'm trying to say rather than distracted at look, because I've got a brilliant slideshow, actually. It's really got lovely pictures on it, but um, that would just distract you from what I'm saying. But one of the things we're finding as people of faith and people in the churches is that in terms of trying to get the Christian message, by and large, I know there's great examples of this, to see all young people coming to an event like this to come for five days, of course there are great examples. We do a lot of fantastic things with youth and Spuck as well, and, and it is brilliant. But by and large, we don't seem to be getting our message heard. We don't seem to be convincing people. We don't seem to be filling our churches. We don't seem to be getting young people to commit themselves to marriage, to having families. We just don't seem to be getting the message out just now. And what uh, social scientists are observing is a radical change in views of what they call the millennials. And pretty much that's you. If you're born around about the, the millennium, you're the millennials. But what we're noticing is, is people of faith and people working, in, especially in uh, social policy areas. I st first started to look into this probably about 10 years ago when I was working on uh, same-sex marriage issues. And what we were finding, it, does, it didn't matter really how reasonable your argument was, how well you presented it, how reasonable you were, how fair-minded and objective you were. People still didn't agree with you at the end of it. People still went and did the opposite, the thing that seemed irrational, illogical, harmful even. They still chose to do that. 
And so I, we got involved with uh, various people that were starting to study um, the social science of how people think and how people make up their minds and form their opinions, especially their moral opinions. And so as we started to look at that, we learned a lot of interesting facts. So this is really what I'm trying to condense to you today and give you some tools. And what we do at SPUC is we have, uh, we've just run our first one about two months ago. We have what we call the Communications Academy. And the Communications Ac Academy looks at a few things to do with communication. But this is, so what I'm going to cover for you today is part of that Communications Academy work that we're doing with young people. So if you're interested in reflecting on this over a week, what we do is we do it over a whole weekend and you can explore it in more detail and you can look at opportunities of how could I use this information and use it effectively, um, then get in touch with us. We're, going to, we're hoping that we can roll out the Communications Academy and do it with even more young people. But anyway, a quote from Jonathan Swift that's uh, um, pertinent or maybe encapsulates, you know, hundreds of years later, what we're finding is that um, well, the, the comment he made was, reasoning will never make a man correct an ill opinion, which by reason he never acquired. So pretty much what we are trying to do is reason with people who have views. They, they didn't reason out themselves. They didn't come up with these views through logically thinking, well, if that's A and that's B and A plus B equals C, that it must be C. They, they don't, it doesn't come like that. That's not how the brain works. And what we have now is about 30 years of scientific uh, evidence and experimentation um, from the fields of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, narrative theory, that allows us to have a deeper insight into why it is, where did they, if it's not through reason that they got his opinion, where, where on earth did they get them? And if we know that, then we can start to use the tools or understand the, the, the path of formation so that we can help people along the path of formation to something that actually is true. Because many of our citizens today believe stuff that's absolutely not true. And we can, we can actually show, I'm sure there's probably a few professors of philosophy or theology here who know that they can prove that Richard Dawkins is wrong. But generally scientists and our journalists and our reporters and our producers in the BBC all believe Richard Dawkins. Why is that the case? So there are, what I want to go through are five key techniques, five key tools. I'm going to say a bit about each of them, but they are five tools that go together. They interrelate and they can be used together. So I'm just going to talk through... Um, what time did I start talking, Anthony? I, I was promised 45 minutes, so I'll try and keep to 45 minutes. Five. 510. I thought it was 510, but anyway, uh, we can argue about that then. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go through five different uh, areas, and these are, now I, I'm going to put up a summary slide at the end if you want to get that, or, or if you want a copy of the full slide. I've got a full slideshow that I, I will send you if you want it, so you don't have to take, scribble down lots of notes. We're going to look at emotion, we're going to look at narrative, we're going to look at s storytelling going to look at metaphor and we're going to look at meme the one of the so that's the five key areas now what I want to say about emotion is emotion uh, a lot of us think that uh, probably a lot of you the fact that you you have faith or you, you you're willing to come to something like this that you're open-minded or or that you're pro-life you probably are not typical 
you're, you're, you're okay, but you, you know, the, the, <laughs> you're probably not like most people who just go with the flow. And, you know, you're probably what we would call as rationalists. A rationalist think that people analyze things. So they analyze it, they get the facts, and then they think about those facts, and then they will come to a conclusion. People don't think about think like that. What the evidence, the scientific experimentation is starting to show is that that role of understanding, of knowing, of cognition is actually very intertwined with our emotion. So within the human mind, if you think of the human mind is just something that reasons, you're only seeing a partial picture. And in fact, you're only seeing a, a minimal picture because the reality is that there's something much, much greater than that. It turns out that as whatever experience you go through in life, whatever you happen to be doing, there will be some emotional judgment that's been um, touched or, or experienced with that, that particular experience. So when you do something, even though you think you're acting rationally, there's going to be some emotional trigger that's going on that you don't even realize is there. You're not even taking into the equation. Now, I'll, I'll maybe explain some examples of that. Um, th there was one, well, this, this particular example I'll mention, I'll mention one example, and that is that shows that the emotional aspect of it is something that's even below your conscience, your, your conscious level. So you emotionally have things happening to you that that come to mind will have an output to your mind that you're not actually aware of. So the experiment they used in this one, there was a, a particular guy called David who couldn't form memories. So he's one of these guys, he had some um, accident that damaged the uh, prefrontal cortex. So he couldn't form long-lasting memories. So basically you could walk into a room and say, oh, hi, David, I'm John, hi, John. Uh, introduce yourself, have a conversation with him, then leave the room and come back in 10 minutes later. He's never seen you before. You could introduce yourself again and say, oh, oh hi, David, it's John. Oh, John, hi, nice to see you again. Hey, well, not nice to see you again, nice to see you. Uh, he, he wouldn't know. So what they did with David was they found that they did an experiment and the experiment was to get two people and it was to see who he would choose to help him to perform a particular task. And what they did was they made one of the helpers a particularly attractive-looking woman. So they sent the two, and sure enough, the first time, yep, he chose the attractive-looking woman. But they'd asked her to be very um, sharp with him. So she was very unhelpful when they did the task. So she left the room, and then they come back, and they introduced him again. So, oh, David, here's two people. Um, one of them's going to help you with a task. Could you choose which one it was? he repeatedly kept choosing the less attractive person after he had experienced um, the bad behavior of the attractive woman. So the conclusion they, they came to from this, they did more deeper experimentation than just, um, just the, the bare skeleton that I, I'm telling you about. From that experiment, they were able to um, deduce that what happens is emotionally we experience something, but then that emotion prompts our intellect, prompts the reasoning part, but we're unaware 
of the actual mechanism of the emotion that's taking place. So other things that they, they can do, for example, um, when they take you to meet, say, say if you have to go to meet someone or assess a particular person, it actually makes a difference to you, to your reasoning part, um, the environment in which it takes place, the way you're treated uh, when, you're, when, when you turn up at the place, if they give you a coffee. They did one where they, they got people to assess a character, um, but when they gave them a cup of coffee before they asked them to do the, the assessment, um, the people had sort of been primed through their body, through their experience, to be warmer, and they, 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 they then believed that the person they were assessing, even though it was the exact same information, was a warmer person. So there is, an, there is an aspect of emotion that's taking place in the human mind that we are not taking into account, and also one that it seems to be entwined with our reasoning. So what they've come up with is a model of the brain that has a two processes, a sort of a, 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 a double model. And one way, I mean, one of my daughters doesn't like this example, but a lot of people do like it. They talk about the mind being something like an elephant with a rider on top of it. So if you think of, uh, so, so I was going to say about, you know, I've never ridden an elephant. Nowadays, you look at every kid's all go to Thailand, they seem to ride elephants and do exotic things. I've never done that. Um, okay, I did a horse once, and I couldn't control the horse at all. It just went, it crossed a, a dual carriageway, and I was on top of it. <laughs> so we all have an experience that perhaps trying to control a, a horse is hard. Trying to control an elephant is nigh on impossible, unless you're, unless you're really good. So what they, have, what they propose is for the mind, when we're trying to reason, we have these two things going on. We have the emotions, which are the elephant, and we have the intellect, which is the rider. And typically what happens is it's the elephant, i.e. the emotions, that determines the path that you're going to take. And what your rider is going to do, i.e. your intellect, your intellect is going to say, actually, I can't control these emotions. I'm just going to go with it. And so the emotions actually justify, justify why the emotions have chosen to do something. So this is what you're coming up against when it comes to emotion. People have a gut feeling about something. So it's in their gut they have it. And what they find is that um, once people have that gut feeling on something... For us, it could be uh, Richard Dawkins is amazing. Um, I'm an atheist. Atheists are scientific. Um, religious people are a bit backward. Whatever it is, whatever this gut feeling, and it can be things that are emotionally primed through our environment. So we have these emotions that helped form our gut response to things, but then our intellect, rather than, than analysing the facts... It justifies why the emotions feel that way. Does that make sense? Sorry, I feel that. Just when I saw some people falling asleep. Sorry, just get, get a snooze. But um, um, basically, if you just get that point about we think we're dealing with people rationally, and you're going through A, B, C, and all all the logic of it, but that is not why they're making their opinions. They have a gut feeling, and. Typically, those gut feelings arise, so they see it in children, 
uh, even, even on moral values. Children's moral values start to arise when they're very young. You know, try stealing an action man off a wee toddler. Um, they know what's right and wrong. They have this gut feeling. But it's only l later that the reasoning part of the, the brain cuts, you know, starts to assert itself and you're capable of reasoning. But most people would rather not do it. So what they find is the system one, the emotional system, typically can be uh, biased. So there's, there's a whole series of um, ways to bias someone's emotions. Um, try going on Wikipedia. There's a whole section on how to bias that. One of the strongest ones is confirmation bias. So people, confirmation biases, we try to find the things that, that accord with what we already believe. That's a strong form of bias there. Another one is the, is the, uh, the closeness of a piece of information you've received, i.e. you believe the last thing you were told. Lots of people, if you, if you do lots and lots of research on something, and then just before you're about to talk on it or have a debate about it, you read some piece of information, you think, oh, that's it. Because you got that piece of information, that piece of thing, you're more likely to follow that. So the, anyway, the science to show all of those things. But it means for us, we have to be aware that when we are talking about our issues, um, we have to know that it's the emotion that we have to take care of. We have to deal with that if we're going to get a chance to reason with the person. So the implications for us are, I'll, I'll just summarise it, um, what they are. If that is the case, if this model of the human mind is correct, we need to be aware that um, the emotional part of us, the elephant, it avoids people who are hostile. So that's why they love portraying pro-lifers as extremists or pro-lifers pro as being angry and violent. And if they're going to show you a picture of them, they're outside and they're waving placards and they're spitting at women and calling them murderers. And that, giving people that impression works. It primes their emotions to go in a particular direction. So the emotional part of us avoids people who are hostile. In a, con in a conflict situation like that, they find that the, the elephant and the rider, the, the intellect and the emotions work together and they will work to combat the enemy. So when we get into that situation, it's very hard for us to, to reason with anyone uh, at all. The other thing is, when it comes to emotions, is people will find that um, once someone has a really visceral gut feeling on something, you virtually cannot change their opinion. Uh, what they will typically say, you know, when they're chatting to you, so you've, you've probably all had pro-life or pro-abortion talks or met a pro-abortionist and you have a discussion with them. What they are thinking is, must I believe this position? Must I believe this pro-life position? And they then try to find a way to avoid agreeing with you. So you've maybe all had those, well, it's not actually a baby, they'll say to you. And then, so you prove it's not a baby and say, oh, what about the woman who was raped? You go, all right, okay, well, 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 most abortions aren't for a rape. You know, so you have that discussion with that and they'll say, well, what about the, uh, the population explosion? You know, it's not a lot of resources in the world. And then you move on from that. And what you're doing is you're running after them, chasing them as they find another avenue just to try and escape because they know that they cannot agree with you. And it's an emotional decision. It's not reason that's taking place. So you need to be aware of that. So, the so the, there are implications for us about how we uh, apply that. And that is, um, 
we need somehow to direct um, and motivate the emotions of someone. So we have to find a way that the person has an empathy with us when we're having this discussion with them. And we have to show them a pathway. We have to try, it's as if you're trying to form a path for the elephants to follow. You need to get their emotions to follow uh, a, a particular direction. So you shape a path for them. And one of the ways you shape a path is by giving repeated information. You keep repeating the messages. And you, you hear the pro-abortionists use this. They seem to uh, be way ahead of us in this. You know, they, they keep talking about a woman's choice and those poor women, are my body, my choice, my, my body, my choice. They just repeat it over and over and over again till people uh, absorb it emotionally. Okay, now the thing about it emotionally is the, the emotion is one thing, but we have, we have to frame our argument in a way that emotionally grabs the person and we have to say to them, someone like you should behave like this. Someone like you should believe this, which takes us on to the second one, which is narrative. So emotion, I've maybe overdone it a bit talking about emotion. The next thing is narrative. And by narrative, I don't mean a story. I'll, I'll get to that. But by narrative, I mean my understanding of who I am as a person. We, each of us will have uh, a personal narrative. Uh, so you will have a particular impression of the, the, the sort of person that you are. You know that um, I'm a pillar of the community, or I'm a rebel, or I'm really intellectual, or I'm crazy, or you know I'm football mad, or wh whatever it is. Um, and you'll have a combination of these. Um, now, people will have developed narratives, and the narratives inform them about, it, it's, it informs them about how they will behave in given situations. You know, it's the, like the lens they perceive all the events around them. So people can have very, very different um, narratives. So, for example, we could, we could go to the... Oh, we could go to Jerusalem today and we could find someone and start chatting to them and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we are pe we're very proud to, to, to be here, you know, after the, the, the Holocaust. You know, our people moved to this land. You know, it was underdeveloped. You know, but the brave people who'd come through that persecution, the most terrible persecution ever seen, have forged a democracy and an economic success in a land where um, the, uh, there are no other democracies and we've been opposed by people who do not like freedom. You might speak that, and then 200 yards down the road, you'll, you'll meet someone else, and you say, oh, yeah, we live in this land, and after the war, we welcomed people who had been victims of a terrible atrocity. We welcomed them with open arms, and what happened? You know, instead of sharing this land with us, they turned on us, and they, they met our welcome with violence, and they tried to oppress us, and we had no option but to declare war on them. So people can have varied, and those narratives will inform, well, if that's the case, if that's the reality, this is how I need to behave. So there's various kinds of narratives that, that people have. So typically, there will be uh, dominant narratives. That, so the dominant narratives in your life will give you the scripts, sort of like how I should behave. So the, the pro-abortionist, for example, will be, I am a champion for women. I'm a champion for women's freedom. I care about the underdog. I care about the oppressed. And they will use that narrative to justify why they push for you know, freedom of choice or, or however they perceive it. Um, in cases like that, we have to try and find what are known as counter-narratives. We have to find ways that we describe, well, how can someone in this situation 
pe people typically will not dismiss their experiences in life, so they've had a particular experience. We have to find counter-narratives for them to interpret that the dominant narrative maybe isn't actually the reality. So, so you, can, you can go through a process of, of a transformational narrative. You try and transform and take the person from where they are. So, for example, we might say to um, a pro-abortionist, um, we might start off with you know, recognising a, a level of leg legitimacy for them. So, so recognise a high legitimacy for them and a low legitimacy for us. You might say, oh, I totally respect the, what you've been doing through feminism and the need for feminism when women were oppressed and the women weren't allowed to vote and women didn't have the opportunities that men were given and you've recognised that and freedom is such an important thing. And maybe in the pro-life movement, maybe we've emphasised a bit much about the life and, and neglected that area about freedom and about the fact that you were concerned about women. Maybe we did. Um, you know, but then you can then move it on to sort of a, a moderate legitimacy for both of you and say, but ironically, it turns out that actually in the pro-life movement, we've had to work with all these women who've been damaged by abortion. And it turns out that as you've been helping women, so we've been helping women. And you start to then find a narrative that allows them the opportunity to move and think that, well, actually, we could reconstruct a narrative here that, you know, instead of being an adverse an adversary, um, completely opposed to our position, you could reinterpret that now that we've got new information, and this is a key for transforming people's personal narratives, if you can add new information to it. So one of the things, for example, we are trying to expose is the fact that, you know, when we have women come to us, our experience, Louise might uh, correct me here, but our experience is like 70% of women will say they were coerced in some way towards abortion. So if we can explain that to people, if people are saying, oh, yeah, we for free, it's my body, my choice, and we can say, well, yeah, I know, we used to believe that as well, but it turns out that actually abortion is a tool for men to oppress women, and they're being forced to have abortions, and they're being forced to go against this deep internal, uh, maternal instinct, which, is, which uh, is so natural and so understandable. They've been forced to go against that. So you try and build narratives so that they can interpret reality to give them a new set of scripts that might allow them to be pro-life or whatever it is, whatever it is you're doing. You might be trying to convince people that they should be atheists or they should be people of faith or they should be supporting their priests or their, their parishes, whatever it is. So you need to find ways you destabilize their position and you start to assert a narrative that could work with them. And you then start to affirm maybe some commonality. So again, about we care about women sort of type things. And if there are differences, you, you know, they will have various differences, but you try and show them the, you try and show them the reality of the bigger picture that if we create a world like this that supports women, but at the same time we can support the right to life, then we have an opportunity to, to move on. Okay, now the next one I want to move on to uh, is storytelling. A key thing, the, the, again, the, the psychologists um, are finding is that the human brain seems to be hardwired for storytelling. And we can see that, you just, go, just go on the train, people are all looking at their phones, reading stories or Facebook, they all want to see what people are up to, or they're reading books, or they're reading magazines, or they're going to the movies, to the, the cinema. 
people love stories and the st storytelling in a way is like a flight simulator for the mind. It allows you to put yourself into a particular position that typically you would never ever be in your real life. So you can go through experiences and test out such circumstances or situations. And you can choose um, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, what choices they make, what are the consequences of the choices. And from that, um, basically provide a pathway that you can shape people along through uh, the storytelling that you do with them. So the reality probably in our society is that we, we are not the guys who are telling the stories. So if you ever, you know, you know, it's just simple things about portraying ways that people live. Uh, you know, I sometimes say half-jokingly that I can remember the, the, the start of the collapse of sort of a Christian family. And it was like April, a Thursday night in April 1978. And, and it was when Dynasty, uh, no, Dallas, sorry, it was... Dallas was the first big American soap to hit the UK. And as you started to watch Dallas, you started to see n new ways of living. You know, you started to see Cliff Barnes and J.R. Ewing and Sue Ellen and uh, you young guys, won't, that won't mean anything to any of you, but the, some of the older priests can remember. But basically they showed ways of living and they told stories to teach people like, hey, if you live like this, you do that, you're gonna be really happy. And by the storytelling, you can shape who people look up to. And this is the thing that we have sort of failed to do. We've moved on. It's moved to a post-Christian generation. And, you know, we have lots of stories. Within the Catholic community, there are so many. You know, you know last night uh, I was in the hotel and I saw a wee bit of uh, Mission Impossible. Anyone see it last night? No, you're all doing holy things. But anyway, Mission Impossible was on. And it was really sort of an exciting bit. He was chasing somebody all over the place. I thought, oh, my word, how's he going to get out of that? Um... You know, but we've, we, guys, Father John Gerard, for an example, in, in the 16th, I think he's the only, um, somebody can maybe fact check that for me, but I think Father John Gerard in 1605, I think was the only man who ever escaped from the Tower of London. And it was St. Nicholas Owen that orchestrated them getting out. Now, if you read the story of that, you think, oh my, what, how, these guys were like secret agents 400 years ago. A man had been tortured so he couldn't use his arms and he had to, he had to somehow grab onto a rope and get from the Tower of London, and I was on the boat trip last night, and I thought, how on earth did he do that from the, the, the Thames? He somehow got Father Nicholas Owen, and then the stories of Father Nicholas Owen, this was a, a guy who was called, they called him Little John at the time, but he basically carved out all the priest holes during the times of persecution in, in England and in Wales, and he kept the Catholic Church alive. But if you, if you read the lives of these guys, and that's something that we used to do in the church, so we used to read the lives of the saints, if you read about the, the Jesuits in North America, when they went over there to Christianize the people, now it's all the stories are, oh yeah, the church went, it was the church that went over and invaded America and destroyed all the natives. I mean, you couldn't make it up, you know, but well, they have made it up. But, you know, so they're, they're, they've distorted reality, but we can tell those stories again and you can show people true acts of heroism and true acts of service. If you use, people love stories, and if we told those stories again, I mean, if you read some of those French Jesuits, they would go over, they would meet the Iroquois, uh, they would be taken prisoners, they would be tortured, they would take them out in front of the, the village every day and they would get the children to do it and they would get hot stones and drop the hot stones on their skin and they would bite their fingers off, they would do stuff like that. So they did all these tortures and then 
some a trader would come along and offer to take the priest away or offer him a route of escape and then the, the priest would say actually i'm going to stay because i think the lord wants me to stay here to convert these people and you think what you've lost all your fingers you've had your skin all burnt off you've been tortured hung up in the ropes with their arms for, for days and end so the heroism of these guys makes great stories and but it's the heroism of catholics throughout time and if we told those stories again or we tell new stories, and even simple stories. Like I tried, part of the formation of my kids, I don't know if they liked it or not, was watching Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> so you look, at, you look at characters about how do people behave, you know, and you're looking for, do people have the human virtues? You know, so you're pe- looking for people who are virtuous. If you, if you put them into films, people start to, to copy them. They start to try and emulate them. One of my girls was saying, folk are now starting to wear the... The, the, the long skirts that they've got in Mamma Mia. I don't know. Is that true? Who said that? Yeah, Grace. Okay, so people, walk, they go and they watch that and they look, how are they talking? How are they dressing? How are they behaving? And by watching it in the stories, you're giving them a pattern for them to copy. Now, the thing about the story telling for us, the implications to take on board is tell more stories. And this is why I think Pope John Paul II wanted to um, canonize so many people. He knew that the lives of saints were an example to people. They were stories of the faith lived out in, in a person's life. You know, but if we can use stories and embed our values and our attitudes, our beliefs in, in our histories, just like those that I told you, the, the Israeli narratives, there is a history that we can tell about uh, the Christianity has been the greatest civilizing force the world has ever seen but no one is telling that story we're hearing the opposite oh yeah your religions all cause war and hatred and bloodshed it's not true but the bad guys are telling the stories and and, and we are not so we need to use but we can use stories as well to look at the dilemmas so take on board what the others are saying so what is it like to experience uh, an unintended pregnancy or to be under pressure to have an abortion and we've had some calls i mean louise has done heroic work in the office getting phone calls and you get and i remember one woman phoning and every person she knew in her life was telling her she had to have an abortion every single person you know her boyfriend her mum, her friends her family and you know they were saying oh but you're actually being selfish wanting to keep that baby these are the things that be so if we tell stories where we get people to experience that but, but as in the sort of the flight simulator experience, not going through it themselves, it prepares them for, well, what would I do when I face that situation for real? Now, uh, um, a fifth thing I want to move on to, just quickly try and sum up. No, so I think it's only my fourth one. Uh, people don't like to think about complicated things. Um, I've got a friend who's he's big into the science of, of business and all that and what makes businesses successful, and he's looked at all the science of that. And he'll often say, John, 2% of people think, 3% of people think they think, and 95% of people would rather die than think. So I don't know if it's as that, but he has certainly looked into it a lot more than I have, about people thinking. But um, the reality is, people don't like, so this, again, this is based on the science, people don't like to think too much about difficult concepts. So what you've got to try and do is help them think about it in something that they already, in a way that they already understand. So metaphor, so using metaphor. So some people might use, you know, 
treasures in a field is a metaphor, or having a pot of roast potatoes is a metaphor. Uh, so people might have metaphors like that that make you think, oh yeah, I get it, I get it, oh yeah, I know what you mean. So in something that might be a difficult thing to conceive, if you put it into some, another way, so if we talk about, oh, we're fighting for freedom, you know, this is the, the you know, people in the past um, didn't have their rights respected, they weren't recognised as human beings, you know, they, they were seen as slaves. And then there were people who came along and fought against slavery. Well, we're, the, we're like that now. There's people now who are not recognised as fully human. They're unborn babies. And we're, the, we're just like the people who fought against slavery. So we will win. There is truth in our side. So metaphors like that to try. So they talk about framing an argument. So if you frame it, you use a metaphor. And what you're saying to people is, see this difficult concept? This is how to understand it. Okay, so I could, I've got loads of examples in metaphors, but I'm running out of time. Um, but anyway, the, the slideshow really, honestly, it's amazing. Uh, I'll send it to you if you want it. Uh, no. So there's lots of metaphors you can use. You know, like, you know, we use it in a language all the time. Even if you're talking to somebody and they explain something, you go, all right, I see. You're actually using the metaphor of seeing. You're understanding what you go, I see. Or, the, oh, yeah, the economy's collapsed. You know, the economy, you know I mean, we, we use things like, oh, it's a real, it's a real rocky road. Oh, yeah, I was out there, had a, you know, a difficult game. You know, I was a bit of a lame duck. You know, we use metaphors all the time. You think, oh, right, it saves you a whole load of words. Now, the last thing that I'm going to get to is meme. So, meme is those pictures, um, yeah, those pictures I showed you. Right? So that's typically what folk are passing on as memes. But a meme is an idea that's in people's heads that just sort of won't, typically won't be dislodged. It was actually Richard Dawkins that came up with the term meme, and he came up with it in the 70s. And what he said is, a meme is like, to the mind, is like a gene to your, your body and your DNA. So it's something that's implanted in there, and it seems to have a life of its own. Once it's in your head, you can't seem to get rid of it. And you pass it on, it seems to have a life of its own and be passed to others. So there's some strong memes. My body, my choice is a meme, I would say. Um, another meme, and they said, this, uh, this is a Richard Dawkins one. Now, I just have to do that. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Do you? It's somebody's birthday. So you do that. You go, oh, whose birthday? So we were in TGI's the other night, and that, that they started to sing, go, oh, it's somebody's birthday. You, you know what it means. It's a, it's a piece of information that's in there. Now, we need to get good memes in people's heads. You know, so another meme would be an eye for an eye. So... You know, sometimes my neighbour doesn't behave very well and annoys my wife a lot. And you go, ah, okay. Now, if he did something bad, I'd say, well, Angela, an eye for an eye. What am I saying? Do you know what I mean? So he's, do, he's throwing bricks over into her garden, right? Okay. So if I said, okay, an eye for an eye, that means I'm going to throw the bricks back into the garden. Or he scratched the side of my car. Eye for an eye, I'm going to scratch. Now, what they find is you cannot fight a meme. Once it's in there, if you, if you try and attack a meme, you make it stronger. Now, one of the things in my slide I was going to show you, there was a, it was a meme they tried to use before, and it was the, the Tories tried, were trying to bring in down Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister. And so what they did was they got a picture of Tony Blair and they put the devil's eyes across it. And what they found is Tony Blair's uh, ratings went up. Because what they found was, the idea was Tony Blair was powerful and he was in command and he's dangerous and he's strong and powerful. And then they thought, ah, oh, yes, oh, yes, so's the devil. Do you know what I mean? So it actually reinforced the meme that this guy is, is powerful. 
and people vote for powerful for folk they perceive to be powerful. So there, there are memes there that are hard to dislodge. But an eye for an eye, someone clever came along, Gandhi, one of my kids informed me recently, came along and said, well, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So you can take a meme and you can overlay it and that can help you beat it. There was a meme, so I'll get my time. Okay, two minutes just to tell this one. McDonald's were facing a problem because somebody put out the idea that their burgers had worms in them. So this got into people's heads and folk were like, worms in a burger. Bleh. So the sales of burgers was going down and they were like, so what would you do? Like anyone who, any chief executive, yeah, okay, get your PR department out. They sent out a letter and the letter said, we can carry, categorically um, assure you there are no worms in our burgers. What did people say? Oh, that proves it. There are definitely worms in their burgers. So they then got a marketing agency involved, and the marketing agency sort of pondered this for ages, got focus groups and all the rest of it, and then they eventually came out with a statement. They said, uh, we've looked at this issue, we've looked into the production of uh, worm burgers, and it's $6 to produce a worm burger. Uh, we produce the best burgers in the world, we believe, for $1. I'm sorry, you cannot have worms in your burgers. So they overlaid the meme and they managed to defeat it. Now, what I've always said to people, if you can come up with a meme, a meme for me, um, that can overlay my body, my choice, everyone thinks they've got it, please find it, get it to me, and we'll try and use it. But anyway, sorry, I've, I've some of that I'm hope, hoping would be useful. I blethered on it some parts more than I, I intended to. Um, but I'm just going to summarise in a second, just show you the summary. Uh, really, it's these three points. Um, one is, learn what those tools are. They're, they're tool now that we know how human beings think and form their opinions, we can use it. The bad guys are using it. They're using it in every film that comes out of Hollywood. They're using it in the lyrics to pop songs. They're using it in magazines. They're teaching it to our kids. Let us use those techniques as well, and we can displace the culture of death by getting the good messages in. So learn about, uh, I can say a lot more in memes. I could actually probably give an hour's talk on memes themselves because there's a whole science to what makes memes effective. So come back, invite me back in five years when you've forgotten how uh, tiring I was. Uh, okay, so learn, learn those tools. Come and, come and join our, our communications academy. You're welcome to do that. We'll fit one in if you, if you want to have one. Learn about emotions, about stories, about metaphors, about narratives, about memes. Find the forums where you can use them. So you might be a teacher. You can build this into your drama class, your geography class, your history class. Use those techniques in whatever environment you're in, in your homily. You can use them and communicate to people in a way that's emotionally engaging, and you can shape them in the right direction. And choose the themes that you want to keep reiterating. So for us, it might be about the importance of the right to life. It might be about how harmful abortion is to women. It might be about how important it is for conscious, we are facing the suppression of conscience in our society today. And people think it's a good thing. Oh, we can't have people of conscience interfering. If you're not free, if you're not free to follow your conscience, you're not free. You know, but so we need to find ways that we can get that through to people. We need to find messages about a coherent understanding of human rights. It might be about eugenics. And Monday, the Supreme Court just passed a, a ruling you are allowed now to starve one of your relatives to death if they're in a minimally conscious state. So that means if they're just slipping in and out of a coma, you can withdraw their food and fluids and dehydrate them to death. It's stuff they were doing in 1930 Germany. 
And folk are doing that. Oh, yeah, what's wrong with that? Oh, you don't want folk to suffer. Oh, you want the family to suffer. This is the sort of world that we're in now. The, the culture of death is expanding, and we need to get serious about turning it around. And we need to know the mechanisms through which we can do that. Now, it's a tough job. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not easy. We have been, God has put us in the world at this time, this stage, this particular part of the world. And it's a hard job. And we will, you know, I'm, I'm aiming to succeed. You know, but below it, we have to keep working. You know, there's a lot of effort. You know, so you can see here that we need dedication, hard work. We need to get good habits. We need to, we, we will have disappointments in what we do, but we need to keep at it. And uh, if we persist, we can get these messages through. Now, we do a lot of initiatives. I think I did have an hour. It's five to... Phew, you're saying, okay. Okay, so it's almost the end, but I did promise. One of, we do lots of initiatives in Spock aimed at transforming our culture to try and produce a pro-life culture. And we're, we're trying to find the right messages to say, how to engage people emotionally, and we're trying to train up people to do that for us. And one of the initiatives we do is, is with young people. We do lots of things with young people. You know, we send people over to Washington for the March for Life. We've got youth conferences. We, we do lots of talks in schools and stuff like that. But a really uh, in, sort of influential initiative, because lots of people who see it are, are really inspired by it, is our Project Truth initiative. And there's a few of them here tonight uh, in the audience. But before... Um, before they sort of identify themselves, I'm just going to let you see this wee clip of them, which I think is just a few minutes, Louise, is that right? So we're out here on the Project Truth Roadshow. We've been going around sort of Monday to Friday. We're on Thursday now. We've got one more day tomorrow. And the reason we do it is really we're just out in the streets. We've got these leaflets here. And on the back, we've got the development of the baby um, in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. So we're just drawing people's attention to within the first 10 weeks, uh, the baby has heartbeat. It's got arms and legs, fingers and toes. I've kind of I've seen the last four, three years and I just thought, I'm pro-life, I have an interest in the area and I think a lot of people don't know what an abortion involves and what life there is from conception and I just thought, I know, I'm like, happy to, to share it with other people, so. It's my personal experience as my mum had me when she was 16 um, my dad was not there and she got on just great and I just think, how amazing is that, you know? If my mum can do it, I can't any other girl, you know. That we are for women. We we're we're here for women, whatever circumstance they find themselves in, whether they are pregnant or had an abortion. We're here, either side, just to say it's all right. We'll get through it and give them yeah, whatever and, and relate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So not because we're young, we can relate to them easily. Um, your encounters with people uh, is really important. Um, it can be anything from talking about um, where life begins, uh, the development of the child in the womb. You know, we've got all the fetal models, and we're talking about. Um, what qualities uh, the child has at different stages of development. But I mean, even little things like this, you've got here um, the size of the child's feet at 10 weeks inside the womb. And you know, that, that makes a difference when somebody sees that. Um, yeah, so we're here to talk about the humanity of the child. And, uh, and also to um, promote the work of ARCH, Abortion Recovery Care Helpline, to help women who are uh, just, uh, 
problem situations, uh, crisis pregnancies, and also who afterwards, maybe after having an abortion, are looking for some help. So really, we're an all-encompassing mission here. It's just amazing to be out with a group of people who believe the same things as you. Um, so there's a real community in it. Um, at night you get to socialise with people who believe the same thing as you and have chats and have lots of fun, make really good friends. And also that, that you're out here, you really are making a difference. We talk to lots and lots of different people. We talk to people that don't know anything about the development of the baby in the womb, that don't know anything about pro-life and who we are and what we believe. Um, you speak to kids who, for them, it's just amazing to see the development of the baby in the womb. You speak to people who've, who've had abortions and you can hopefully touch them in some way as well with our archly flips and things on, on the stall. I'm Joseph. I'm, I'm a student. I'm, uh, I'm actually from India. I'm a student in Edinburgh. And I got interested in uh, pro-life activity, and I got to know it from a conference I attended in St Andrews. So since then, I, I had a feeling like I, we need to talk for people who don't have their actual voice, and every child, irrespective of what, what, it's it's a, it's a life that we are getting from God. It deserves a chance, and we need to speak speak for the people. And if you, if you look at Scotland's population. We are, we, are, we are having an ageing population. I think that I can acknowledge that abortion is like hurting women and taking lives and discarding society pretty much and people don't know about this and people should know about this. On Monday we were up in uh, Stirling and that was amazing. i never seen Stirling before but people were so receptive and they're very shocked that there's a push that there's abortion to birth up to the 40 weeks. They couldn't understand that and why there's a need for it. So I work for SPUC down in London, I'm the communications officer, so anything you see on the website or the Facebook or the Twitter, that's all me. Um, I, I first did Project Truth the first time it happened, I think four years ago now, a couple of years ago. Um, so I just really wanted to kind of get up here again, get out from behind the desk and go out and speak to the public about life. Uh, I think we've had some really good reactions so far, so this is our fourth day. I think actually Motherwell today has been great. We've had you know, so many like mothers and kids coming up and so many people signing our petition. I think what we're seeing all over Scotland is people do not want abortion to be decriminalised. Even people who aren't, don't agree with us generally think it's awful that people want to have abortion up until birth. Yeah, so we've had some really good reactions here in, here in Scotland. At the end of the day, you're speaking to guys in the team about it and you really you know, talk about it and you really feel that we're doing a really good thing here. That, um, even if we save one life or if we just get people talking about it really, maybe the mood can change the public opinion. Oh, I think, where are you guys? They are there. You see them with their hoodies. So I will them. So thanks for that. I, thought, I hope some of that was of interest. If you want to get in touch with Spock or myself to explore any of that, as I said, we go into much more detail on that uh, in our Communications Academy. And I, I believe now we have time for uh, questions, although I, I can see time's moving on. Uh, but if you want to ask questions, feel free. Yeah, I think that, first of all, John, thanks for that great talk. And I think what's going to happen now is I have a couple of minutes just to think of any questions they might want based on what we've just heard, and just a few minutes for questions after that.